A plus on creativity. Hello, and welcome back to the TMI, That's My Interest podcast. I am your co-host, Rebecca, and alongside me, I have Megan, who I guess is the host, if you're the co-host. Wouldn't we both be, like, isn't the requirement of being a co-host, you have to have another co-host, you can't co-host by yourself. I don't know, I just want to be the host. And I'm also the host. (laughs) We're going to fight it out. Yes, this, you already said this is TMI. So yes, I'm Megan. I am an English teacher in Japan. And my co-host, as she said, is Rebecca. And you are a data analyst, correct? That is accurate. I am in Northern California. All right. And as a reminder, this is our podcast where we tell each other about random things. And you get to join us along for the journey. Yes. What a journey. So moving into the first segment of the podcast, known as Structured Chit Chat. I personally have a bit of a update on our third episode. Right on. And so I was talking to a Japanese friend about the oldest people. And I was telling her about Mr. Chiro Emon Kimura, who she had never heard of. But then she said something. Well, I was also telling her about the oldest woman who had ever lived, Jean Calment, or however you say her name, and said that she was 122 years old. And she said, oh, but what about this Japanese person who was 123 years old. And I was like, what? She told me about this guy named Shigechio Izumi. At one point, Guinness World Records recognized him as the oldest man ever. But then there was some problems with confirming his date of birth because of the records as i said in the episode there may be people older than or around the same age as the oldest person we talked about but maybe it can't be confirmed and that is kind of what happened here so on his wikipedia page it says he was either 120 years old and 237 days or he was 105 years old and 237 days they're unsure if his birth date was 1865 or 1880 Oh, that's a big difference. Yeah, I didn't look into exactly the details behind the uncertainty, but I'm sure it's just that the records aren't clear. Maybe they found two records of his birth. And so, yeah, so I thought that was interesting, proving my point that there might be people older than those that we mentioned. Uh, But he, at his most, was 120 years. So he still Mm. would not be the oldest person who ever lived, but he would be the oldest man. And he would only be the second person to have lived over 120 years mm. if his original birth date is correct. So, mm. little interesting tidbit, tidbit. That is interesting. I also went to Starbucks yesterday. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Tell me all about it. 
I, it's not that interesting. Uh, my <laughs> friend had a uh, coupon code, a 500 yen drink. So I got a grande chai for free. And oh, I, nice. I never get, I never oh, get yeah. grandes. I know what you mean. I always get a tall. Oh, just the Starbucks I went to was very nice. It was in this bookstore and it was nice. Nice. Yeah, the funny thing is, while you and I don't typically get anything larger than a tall, I think that in America, grande is definitely the default size. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely the most commonly ordered size. I feel like that's the default. And like, if anyone were to get me a drink at Starbucks, I feel like their default order would they they would they would get a grande yeah that is interesting huh yeah well yeah in japan tall is definitely the normal and sometimes you can even get a short i still try to get a short in america and you can you have to you know ask they typically don't have well it's definitely not listed on the menu but also they don't have like ice drinks like they don't have the proper size Uh, for the the short so like if you got an ice drink in a short size it would be in a tall cup and like it would look weird but you can get hot drinks in a short um but it's definitely like i i am the only person that i have ever seen order a short in America. Even when I worked at Starbucks in America, like I never had a customer even mention it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I almost never see anybody in Japan get a venti. Yes. I never, I, I think maybe one time I saw a girl get a venti and that was it. And I respected it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's, it's funny. I remember when I went back to the U.S. after studying abroad and I just saw like several people walking around with these like venti ice coffees. And I was like, what, what is happening? Where am I? This is crazy. Yeah. Venti is really common in America, too. I would say grande and venti are almost more common than tall. Yeah. My mom always gets a venti. She gets like a like a latte. She puts like an extra, I think, two shots of espresso. Oh my god, in a venti? Do you realize that's like a that's a five shots? I don't think she drinks it all at once. Oh. I think she gets the venti because we don't live close to Starbucks, so she'll like get one and then mm. she'll like like heat it up maybe heat it up and then drink some and heat it up maybe mm. over like mm. maybe over a day though. Mm. That makes sense. That makes sense. I went to Starbucks. I oh, I found this really weird book. Maybe you saw on my Instagram story. I found this mm. book. It was filled with oatmeal recipes, but <laughs> basically they were. First of all, they they listed a lot of oatmeal risottos you could make, hmm. which sounded interesting. And then they listed a bunch of recipes for making Japanese food with oatmeal. They had oatmeal onigiri, is a rice ball. They had oatmeal okonomiyaki instead of flour okonomiyaki Mm. is like a savory japanese pancake they had inari sushi with oatmeal inari sushi is 
a type of quote unquote sushi that is a uh, kind of is rice, but the rice is vinegary. I don't know. That, that's just sushi rice. Sorry, it's rice, sushi rice put into a like fried tofu skin. Mm. But apparently, you can make it with oatmeal. Interesting. Are you gonna try any of these recipes? I was thinking about it. It seems very interesting. No, I've heard a lot recently about savory oatmeals and like a lot of the food bloggers or vloggers or whatever you want to call them that I follow on Instagram have been posting pictures of like savory oatmeals. And it's definitely something I've been meaning to try because oatmeal itself is not inherently sweet, you know, so I definitely can see how it would work. Yeah. Um, I just haven't taken the leap. Yeah. I also have thought about trying savory oatmeals for, like, years and haven't done it. Also, I was going to say, would food bloggers be floggers? I know. That's what I was... I couldn't... Wait, flogger? Like, flog, flog, flog. Ooh. Like. Oh, my okay. God. <laughs> that's a little old-timey humor. <laughs> okay. About <laughs> blogs? Yes. I... <laughs> I also had a vision last night. I made uh, vegan enchiladas, uh, which were very good. And I was like, I should become a vegan. And then I can start a blog called Megan the Vegan. Oh my gosh. I love this vision. But also, I didn't Google it, but there's probably like 40 Megan the Vegan blogs or something. Yes, but yes. I also (laughs) have a... be the best. Why, oh, thank you. I also have an H in my name that kind of throws off the vibe. Mm. I guess I should just, I should add an H to vegan. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> add an H to vegan, and then there really will be only one of you. Meghan the vegan. <laughs> I like that. Sounds I would like follow. Good. I would subscribe. So, I do have a uh, question, but I'm going to make you keep it brief so how did that uh bachelor drama turn out basically i just want to know if the host is continuing to be on the show or not and any other small detail that's important (laughs) so the conclusion to that story is that after a very messy few weeks where he kept issuing apologies that were really just poorly executed and embarrassing. They announced as of yesterday that he will not be returning for The Bachelorette and they're going to have two women host instead. So it's TBD on The Bachelor, like the next season of The Bachelor, but for Bachelorette, he will not be the host. So this is a big deal because he has hosted every single season of the bachelor the bachelorette and bachelor in paradise since its inception in 20 or 2002 i think yeah so it's like a big deal wow all right well that was way less structured chit chat that was a legit conversation i'm impressed with us yeah yeah unstructured chit chat (laughs) structured chit chat (laughs) Uh, Are you ready to get into today's festivities? I am. I'm so excited to hear your topic. I have no (laughs) idea what you have prepared. (laughs) You don't. 
and I, there's a chance you m may not have heard about this, or you may have, so we're going to find out. Let's go to today's topic. So, uh, today's episode is actually a true crime episode, because Ooh. I only know how to talk about death, or death it. adjacent. That's so <laughs> true of your topics. Thus far, yes, the three, the two to three, yep. I mean, the oh old people one, I think, was the most positive one that I've done, and that also involved dead people. Death adjacent, as you said. But I do stand by someone living as old as possible and then dying is literally the best situation for death. Yep. I agree. So, uh, today's episode is a true crime episode. Before we get in and I tell you about uh, this case, I do want to give a content warning that obviously I'm going to talk about murder. And I am also going to have some descriptions of sexual violence and rape, which are the same. And so if anyone out there, if you think that would be too difficult for you to listen to, then uh, join us next week. Just wanted to put that out there. This is a case that took place in Japan. And it is the case of a woman named Lucy Blackman. Have you ever heard this name? I have never heard this name. Okay, that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had not heard of it either until I learned about it like a month or two ago. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Lucy Blackman was a British woman. And if we were British, I think you would definitely know because this was a big deal in the mm. UK. Uh mm. This happened in 2001. I will get into it, but I do have a question. Um, mm. Have you ever you ever been to Roppongi? I feel like I've never been to Roppongi, even though I lived in Tokyo. So that's a good question because I think as an exchange student, I maybe, maybe went there once. Okay. But when I moved back, I, I've, I've been there multiple times. Okay, what... Uh, so... Would you please describe what type of place Roppongi is? It's a it's a, a district in Tokyo, but like, what's it known for, from your perspective? Hmm. Well, my personal experiences there were twofold. The first of which was just going to uh, Mori Tower. I'm sure you've heard of it, Megan. Have Actually, you heard I, of it? No, I haven't. What's that? Oh, okay. Well, it's basically, it's a, one of the tallest buildings in Tokyo. Is it? Well, anyways, there's, you can go up to the top floor of Mori Tower and get an amazing view of Tokyo. And also they have an art museum up there. So I've taken like my family and friends, like people who are visiting Tokyo there. I think it's like a cool spot. And also they have this huge spider statue outside that's like kind of iconic so like I took you know would take pictures underneath that with like family and friends but other than that I, I had been to some like bars and restaurants I'm pretty sure Roppongi has a reputation for its night scene <laughs> and also for being kind of a Roppongi Hills I think is a more affluent area Okay, so thank you for that information. I have never been to this Mori Tower, and I would be interested. So that is helpful information. Uh, Roppongi, at least uh, according to the book that I was reading, uh, is known as a nightlife spot, and it's also known as a foreigner district. 
it is really popular mm. among quote unquote the foreign population at least for mm. like i think going out to bars and the nightlife and they do have an extensive nightlife scene um mm-hmm. lots of clubs like dance clubs and mm-hmm. also lots of hostess clubs do you know mm-hmm. anything about hostess clubs oh gosh my it's knowledge okay if you don't of that is limited i know what it is you know i know that it's a place hostess clubs are would be a place where like men would go to like be doted upon by beautiful women basically yeah that's pretty decent description i think okay well that gives you a preview of all the things that we are going to talk about today uh i would like to mention what sources i'm using so my main source for this is a book which i teased last week that i read a book book called People Who Eat Darkness, the true story of a young woman who vanished from the streets of Tokyo, I believe. The uh, ending is cut off on my preview here. And this is by Richard Lloyd Perry, is his name? Mm. He is, I think he's still alive. He is a journalist. From the UK, who worked in Tokyo for a long time. He's written several books. Hmm. Uh, or three books, not all about Japan. Um, he's read a, wrote a couple of books about just kind of international relations and mm-hmm. news. And he originally, he wrote this book in 2010. Or he published hmm. the book in 2010. Uh, but this case we're talking about happened in 2001. Hmm. Uh, sorry, no, it doesn't. 2000, sorry, she disappeared in 2000 and it takes Mm -hmm. place the whole story we're going to talk about takes place from 2000 and 2001 uh i also have a couple of news sites that i i referenced this australian newspaper called the age bbc and also this website that i'm now really in love with called murderpedia murderpedia yes so I'd heard the name before on uh, My Favorite Murder. They mentioned Murderpedia and how much they love it. And I went and it's so useful. You can look up all kinds of murders and they have so many sources. So they give a description of the, like the murder and the perpetrator and crimes that they've done, victims. And they also have some like articles that they've found on the internet or from a newspaper or something. So it's really, it's really useful. Mm. Really useful. That is... That is so fascinating. I definitely will have yeah. to check that out. Check that out. Okay, so I guess I'll get started. Um, I'm a little nervous because it's like 6 in the morning. I woke up mm-hmm. at 4.30 and That's there's a lot of details here. Okay, and I'll try to get through this as best as I can. Okay, so this uh, young woman, Lucy Blackman, I believe I'm pronouncing her name right. So the spelling of her name is L-U-C-I-E. And for a bit, I thought it was Lucie Blackman, but I think it's just Lucy. I googled Mm. it. I briefly listened to a podcast episode by, I think, Case Files, and they said her name is Lucy. Mm. So I believe that it is Lucy. Mm. Okay. Okay. So she is a young woman from uh, England... And after she, she didn't go to university, she finished up secondary school and worked, I think, as like assistants for some stockbrokers kind of people, people in finance, didn't make that much money, but had a good time partying. And then she moved on to 
being a hostess, not hostess, sorry, she moved on to being a stewardess for British Airlines. She did that for a few years, maybe one or two, not too many. But eventually she got tired of it because they upgraded her to the international flights, which sounds nice because you can travel. But honestly, she just said she was so tired all the time. Mm. So she couldn't enjoy anything. So she decides to quit doing that. And she had a friend named Louise and Mm. who had also been a stewardess for British Airways. And together they decided to go to Japan. She is 21 at this time. So I assume Louise, her friend, is also 21. And Mm. they decided to go to Japan because Louise's sister had gone to Japan before and worked as a hostess Mm -hmm. and made a decent amount of money. You can make a pretty good amount of money working as a hostess. Mm -hmm. So that's what they decided to do. In the summer of 2000, they go to Japan. They go to Tokyo. They live in a really shitty share house called sasaki house and it they they nicknamed it like the shit house because they hated how bad it was like this place was it was just a share house that foreigners stayed at and like oh no not in like these foreigner it sounded so crazy to me they said like people like smoked weed in the living room oh like i've like i do not get anywhere near any drugs in japan like it is a big no-no and it's just crazy to me that a bunch of foreigners so i guess they're they're definitely different people than i have hung out with takers i guess yeah and it was normal and anyway they did not like this place they shared one kind of small not uh, i don't know how small but a tatami room together um they were really close so i'm gonna set the scene on uh the july 1st the year 2000 so they'd only been there for like a month or two because uh first of all they are working as hostesses and they're quote they're working illegally so the way it works is basically for these types of jobs you go in with a tourist visa and if it was the same then as it is now you can only work for three months or you can only sorry not work you can only stay in the country for three months but potentially also book didn't go into detail about their visas they also could have been on a working holiday i realized because you can do that as a british citizen i think yeah i think Uh, that i think british people can do that so they could have they could have gotten a year visa potentially but Mm. they were working illegally is the point and that Mm. is actually something that was very normal for hostess clubs that hired foreign women uh they would just come in maybe on a tourist visa for a few months work maybe leave the country go on vacation and then come back and keep working Mm -hmm. and uh so it was a very normal thing in the place that they were working Mm. i also want to specify i'm going to go into more detail about what a hostess is but i want to specify that hostessing is not sex work i would say it's like adjacent to sex work but it's not sex work because there's no like there's generally no nudity and the hostesses do not sleep with clients. That's not the type of work that they do. It's like you said, just kind of doting on the men, lighting their cigarettes, singing karaoke with singing karaoke with them mm-hmm. and just like, you know, like kind of flirting with them and being like, oh, you're so handsome. You're so smart. Mm-hmm. And it's just, to, you know, these men, I guess, that are overworked want to just go and get their ego boosted by these these women. And they and they pay mm-hmm. for it. Like it's th- this these places are expensive. Even the cheaper ones are kind of expensive. Yeah, they have a uh, table charge. 
Yep. That's my, yeah, table charge. And you can, you can usually get to drink as much as you want, but the table charge like uh, can be like 50 to to $100 an hour or something. And then you, anyway, I'll go into more detail that. So I just want to specify that obviously there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with doing sex work, but that is not what these uh, women are doing because I think it's just an important thing to note. So. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. It's sex work adjacent, but not sex work. Exactly. July 1st, Lucy wakes up in her guest house put in parentheses pretty trashy place and she wakes up and she's gonna go meet a client again not a not a sex work thing but as hostesses they did encourage you to go and have dinners or have like dates with the people who the men who visit this is actually part of your job it's called dohan which is like a paid date and the hostesses basically get bonuses for doing this so they get bonuses at the job for doing this because it, you know, encourages the the man to come back to that club because he wants to see that hostess. So it's it's a normal part of her job to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she does this during the day. She goes and meets a, a man. And she's really excited to do this because he's going to give her a cell phone. And at this time in Japan, in 2000, a uh, foreigner who's on a temporary visa, like a tourist visa. Or I don't know if she's on a tourist visa, but he's on a temporary visa, cannot get a cell phone because i think they need to have your like personal information mm. with the laws and he had said that he had a cell phone that he could give her and so she was really excited because that would make her life a lot easier if mm-hmm. she could use a phone she wouldn't have to use mm-hmm. the phone in sasaki house not louise lucy she also had a boyfriend here in japan a american marine named scott so and she was like super in love with him so she was really excited to get this phone so she could talk to her boyfriend and talk to like other clients at or other men who visit her at the hostess club Mm -hmm. and she goes with this man doesn't tell louise his name spends the day with him and she calls louise several times during the day from the man's phone to say okay we're doing this he's gonna take me to the seaside so two or three times she tells louise because that's a the kind of person she was and also she and louise had a plan to meet up that evening and go partying in Roppongi. The two are supposed to go to Roppongi that night, but the calls from Lucy stop, and she doesn't return. Louise knows something's wrong. That's not like Lucy. She does eventually go to the police and notifies Lucy's family, but I can't remember the order. I think that might be after the thing I'm about to tell you. So, the following day from when Lucy disappeared which is July 2nd, so she disappeared. She didn't come home on July 1st. Louise, her friend, gets a very weird phone call. Hmm. And I'm going to read an excerpt from the book to describe this phone call because Mr. Perry does an excellent job because he is a journalist. (laughs) Page 12. Okay, so she gets a phone call. Oh, I think it may have been... It might have not been the next day. It may have been a few days later, and I think she had at least been to the embassy at this point. I don't know if she's gone to the police. Okay, I'm going to read from the book. Just before half past five, her mobile rang again, and she snatched it up. Hello? Louise said. Am I speaking to Louise Phillips? said a voice. Yes, this is Louise. Who's this? My name is Akira Takagi. Anyway, I am ringing on behalf of Lucy Blackman. Lucy? My God, where is she? I'm so worried. Is she there? I am with her. She is here. She is fine. Oh, God. Thank God. Let me speak to Lucy. I need to speak to her. 
It was a man's voice. He spoke English confidently, but with a distinct Japanese accent. He was at all times calm and controlled and matter-of-fact, almost friendly, even when Louise became agitated and upset. She must not be disturbed now, the voice said. Anyway, she is in our dormitory. She is studying and practicing a new way of life. She has so much to learn this week. She can't be disturbed. To her friends, Louise was frantically mouthing, It's him, and signaling for paper and a pen. Who is this, she said. Are you the one she went with on Saturday? I met Lucy on Sunday. She met my guru on Saturday, my group's leader. Your guru? Yes, my guru. Anyway, they met on a train. But she, when I spoke to her, she was in a car. The traffic was bad, so bad, and she didn't want to be late to meet you, so she decided to take the train. Just before she got on the train, she met my guru, and she made a life-changing decision. Anyway, she decided to join this cult that night. A cult? Yes. And it keeps going on. From here, I'll give you a TLDR, because it's like two more pages. But basically, this guy is trying to say, is saying that Lucy randomly decided to join a cult. He says they're in Chiba, which is the prefecture next to Tokyo. He says it's part of a newly risen, risen religion, which they look up later is just what they call all cults in Japan, basically. Oh, uh, this man was Japanese. He spoke English with an accent. One weird thing is that he talked about Lucy's boyfriend and he called him Scotto which is uh, the Japanese pronunciation of Scott, which is weird to me, suggesting that maybe he only saw the name written, or I don't know. It's really weird that he speaks like pretty decent English, but says um, Scott's name in Japanese accent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he doesn't give any identifying information. Just this creepy thing happens. Okay, this is... <laughs> Yeah, what do you think? Interesting development, but (laughs) it's, I'm curious to see how this plays out because as I'm sure you heard about while you were an exchange student in Japan, like I felt like I was constantly being warned of uh, cults in Japan and how they prey on foreigners, particularly foreign women and try to get you to join like cult activity in Japan is an interesting, interesting subject. Yeah, it is. Have you been a approached by cults yes yeah i have so much mm-hmm. so much like so many times uh i don't i don't know if i don't think they like kill people though <laughs> no they're just you know like funky just your money. and yeah weird yeah. new agey yeah so there are a lot of cults in japan that is a, a mm-hmm. good thing to note yes mm-hmm. i'll be like i was at a castle once and these people came up to me they were jehovah's witnesses i think though but I would argue that Jehovah's Witnesses is a cult. Yeah, so that happened. And at some point, Louise does go to the police. Louise notifies Lucy's family, and they come to... Sorry, not all of them, but some of them come to Japan. So her father, I believe his name was Tim, and her sister Sophie do come to Japan to look for Lucy to talk to the police and they also get the media involved which the police didn't super like uh, but that's what they decided to do and I think it was the right call uh, so they, they, they do a lot of press conferences uh, the book I was reading went into a lot of detail about her father Tim he gets a lot of flack apparently because he's really stoic during these press conferences and everybody wants him to like be like the father who's like 
really upset. And Mm. it's a good example of like people deal with whatever, like these terrible situations, how they're going to deal with it. It doesn't mean he doesn't love his daughter. It doesn't mean that he has something to do with her disappearance. Uh, It's just the way he's dealing with it. Uh, But that said, there was Lucy's parents are divorced, pretty ugly divorce. Her parents do not talk. They hate like they hate each other. And her dad had not really been in Lucy's life because of the divorce for a while. So I think some people may have been like, oh, my God, he wasn't in her life and now he cares so much. Well, like, yeah, of course he cares so much. He probably cares more because he hadn't been in her life and he regrets it. And now she's disappeared. Anyway, just going to say that. So mm-hmm. let people mm-hmm. grieve however they want to grieve. You make a really good point in that you shouldn't judge someone's outward expression of emotion because people are are so varied in that respect yeah all right so i gave you the background information about what happened in july of 2000 so briefly i want to talk a little bit more detail about hostesses clubs i kind of already went into them so as i said before they're not sex workers they don't sleep with the men who come in and There are different types of hostesses clubs, and there are some that involve nudity, but the type that Louise and Lucy worked in did not. They are part of this thing called the water trade, called the Mizu Shobai in Japanese, which is kind of an umbrella term for, like, sex work and sex work adjacent Mm. stuff. As I said, they flirt with men in bars, like their cigarettes, sing karaoke, and there's a bit of a competition kind of among the women in the hostess club based on, I guess, the business model. (laughs) Hmm, where like I didn't know that. So basically in a lot of these hostess clubs women get more money if a man likes them. So if a man specifically requests that hostess, he has to pay extra and she gets a bonus. If he goes oh. out to dinner with her on these dohan paid dates, she gets more money. And in some places mm. if you do not get dohan, you get fired. It's just part of your job. Oh my so god. That's job... such a risk. Yeah, yeah, right? The job, when you think about that, the job literally encourages these women to go on dates with quote-unquote strangers. Yeah, the job requires you to take an incredible risk. It's one thing to, like, be at your place of work and performing, you know, maybe not sex work, but sex work adjacent, like, activities, and then to leave and you have your private life, but that's, like, an intermingling of personal and private life, like, that's not cool to require them to do that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, They do make a lot of money, the reason they get away with it. I didn't write it down, but they make, like, at least $30 an hour and then get a bunch of bonuses on top of that. Damn! Yep, so that's why they do it. Because mm-hmm. it sounds like it can be exhausting because you got to put on makeup and heels and look hot and also just be whatever the man who's paying wants you to be. If he wants you to be smart, you can be smart, but he probably doesn't want that. <laughs> probably not. No. And with these, you know, these are foreign hostesses. And so it's Japanese men who are coming and talking to them. So on top of that, it's also the idea of like these Japanese men are really excited that like a beautiful foreign woman will like be interested in them. And maybe they also want to practice English. Mm. Uh, but it's it's understood by the men and the women that this is just like a flirt like a quote-unquote flirty thing nothing physical is going to happen 
Uh, it's like a game, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to flirt with you and you're going to flirt with me. But at the end of the night, we're just going to go home. And there was an example mm-hmm. of like a foreign tourist. I think it might have been German that like went into one of these places and they had mm-hmm. to like drag him out. And he's like, he's like, but she said you wanted to sleep with me. I don't understand. And so they just, he didn't get oh the game. Yikes, but dude. For the most part, the men who come in here understand it's just something that they're paying for to like be doted on. I'm sure that there are some men who get confused, you know, they don't quite understand, but for the most part, it's just words. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how much, I don't even know if you can like touch their hair or anything. Like, I don't know if you can like brush them or not brush them, like not brush their hair as in like brush their shoulder or like hug them. That might depend on the club. Mm, Yeah. That's interesting. But I do want to say this case is so fascinating because you can talk about a lot of different things. We get to talk about sex work in Japan Mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about a bunch of other interesting stuff about Japanese society later. So I want to talk Mm -hmm. a bit about sex work in Japan. So sex work in Japan, uh, as I said, hostesses are not part of the quote unquote sex work, at least the type that Louise and Lucy are doing, but they're adjacent and Japan has a very interesting and variety of like sex work shops, establishments. In Japan, prostitution, the like, I'm using the word prostitution because that is what the legal term that we use. I know that the term prostitutes is out of fashion and we, it's better to use the word sex workers or sex work. But mm-hmm. legally, prostitution in Japan is illegal if it involves vaginal penetration and possibly anal penetration. I don't remember, mm. but basically if it involves penetration, it is illegal. However, that leaves a bunch of stuff yep. legal. And also, if you're in... a lot of gray area. A lot of gray area. And also, if you're just by yourself in a place that gives you a hand job, how do you know that, like, they don't just, you know, just slip it in? Like, it... Yeah, Like, like, I mean, with with consent of the sex worker, but, like, no one's in there watching. So, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a gray area. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of interesting... A lot of just interesting... I feel like Japan is kind of known for... not, Not, like sex stuff but just for being kind of a quirky place that you know comes up with like maid cafes and all kinds of stuff and i feel like they really put that creativity into their sex work establishments Mm. we're going to read you an excerpt from the book page 73 73 okay so there were some gentlemen clubs that were more like strip clubs that had pole dancing uh a brief quote the dancer writhed. Do you say writhed? 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 I think writhed. All right. The dancer writhed and gyrated astride the customer who was allowed to touch and suckle her nipples and breasts and who in some places could pay to go further. Mm. Uh, so these are like gentlemen's clubs that are kind of like half hostess, half strip club. Okay, and now I'm going to read you an excerpt of some of the very interesting types of sex work establishments that Japan has. In Ropungi, there are massage parlors, where a perfunctory rubdown is the pretext for a manually administered happy ending. (laughs) There are fashion hedusu, which is fashion health in English, facilities Mm -hmm. offering a wide range of services, excluding conventional intercourse. This Mm -hmm. can be at a soppurando, soapland. The pretext here (laughs) is an all-over wash by a woman who employs her body as a sponge. (laughs) <laughs> and there's just like a bunch of different ones like there's all kind they explain there's like a taiwanese type of 
place, a Korean type of place. I don't think that means that it's Taiwanese or Korean uh, women doing it, but it's like a style. Okay, here's my favorite. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a no-pants coffee shop, the waitresses (laughs) are almost naked and will provide relief in return for a specified tip. In a no-pants karaoke coffee shop, women without pants perform duets with the customers before, before, after, or during relief. What the fuck? So I think that means while having sex, or maybe not sex, but doing sex acts. Relief. They call it relief. I don't know. I don't. I can't tell. I feel like that's the implication. I think it's the implication. All right. And then my favorite line of this was, and a no pants shabu shabu, shabu shabu hot pot is served rather than coffee. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. A no, it. The designation no pants. No pants. Is like so stupid. It's great. Yeah, I like the shabu shabu one. I do. I love the idea that they combined one of the things I love about Japan. Shabu shabu is like all you can eat um, hot pot where you put like a bunch of meat and veggies in a in a boiling and boiling broth with like a strip club or like um, just with sex work. I don't know. I feel like mm-hmm. they. I mean, they covered all their bases there. So oh it's my very god, that's that's crazy. Yeah. So a little fun tidbit, but I also would like to specify that. While sex work apparently uh, definitely does exist in Japan, um, and I don't, I don't know the, the percentages on how many men visit it, but I don't want people to think that Japan is like, this is like a main thing about Japan. Like, I mean, if you walk in certain districts of cities, yeah, you'll see these. I've seen, I've walked mm-hmm. by Soapland several times. I was aware mm-hmm. of them. You'll walk by them. I don't know that much about them. I don't know really people who visit them. It's not like something that people just like talk about. And if they do go mm-hmm. to these places, I think it, they keep it on the down low. Mm-hmm. Um, man, now I'm thinking about how many of my like male coworkers is, if they've been to any of these places. All right, that's a maybe. That, I mean, probably. I mean, if it's probably. like they have a lot of money, they're stressed. If it's legal, more power to you. I guess we need some. Uh, we need some some men male equivalent. Male, yeah, male sex workers. So I can. I don't know if I would. I don't think I would. I, don't I wouldn't I like sex. that. Like, I'm thinking about Soapland. A, a man, like, ooh, ooh, don't, a strange no, man, weird. don't touch me. Ooh. That's weird. Well, I think that's a very gendered thing. Like, I feel like that's mm. a very, society has said men and women are this way in this Soapland mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> Adheres to that. <laughs> society has said that women should get naked and use their body as a sponge. <laughs> I could see why men would like that. I can see it. Uh, the reverse, I have zero interest. Yeah, well, especially because, like, it's weird. I mean, generally, men are larger than women. I don't know. I feel like that that also makes it weird because I feel like I'm just being crushed. <laughs> I just, I like, imagine myself going to a host club. Like, we're, you know, not a hostess, a host club. And, yeah, like, those exist. You know, seeing what that experience is like. Um, I don't yeah. have like a strong desire yeah. to do it, but yeah. like maybe under certain circumstances I would go, but yeah. I can't, uh, imagine like a soap land or a no pants karaoke. Like I'd be like, Oh God, sir, please put your pants back on. <laughs> well, maybe I feel like maybe in that case, it wouldn't be a no pants. Maybe it would be like a no shirt. Oh, okay. No shirt. You know? Like, like, just like a, like a, like a, like a, like a sexy man. He's, he's like, he's wearing like hot pants and he's got like a little, one of those bow ties, but he's shirtless. 
Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I think that I think yeah. It, would, it, it makes would def- more sense for men as a no shirt thing than a no pants thing. Yeah, I think like, Well, I feel like the no pants places might just be like a word. Like I bet they also probably don't wear shirts. I don't think they're just like pants and just vagina. Or it might be no pants as in no panties. But Maybe. it could be no panties. Actually, you're right, because pants actually in Japanese means underwear, like in the UK. Mm-hmm. Like, pantsu is panties. Yeah, so it could pants. just be girls in skirts with no underwear. Oh my god, entirely. We unlocked mm-hmm. it. We unlocked it. Alright, so that that was that was the last fun thing we we're going to do in this episode, talking about the uh, creativity of sex, sex work, work establishments in Japan. Very creative. Mm-hmm. Very a plus on creativity. Dad was so creeped out by sex work in Japan, by the way, when he visited, like when he saw maids, girls dressed as maids on the street of Akihabara handing out flyers for like maid cafes. That's not My sex dad work, was though. so uncomfortable. No, that's not. Yeah, I should, cl- I should clarify. That's not sex work. I would say that's sex work adjacent as well, though. Yeah, I'd say if you're going like levels getting closer to sex work, it's like maid cafe, hostess club, sex work. Yeah, something like that. It's a, uh, not a scale. It's a spectrum, as with pretty much everything in life. It's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. This case became a media circus. After, you know, um, Lucy's father, Tim, and sister, press conference, press conference, press conference. With the British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, getting involved and asking the Japanese Prime Minister to do something about this case. So, like... It got the attention of the prime minister, both prime ministers. Before this, women had gone missing all the time in Roppongi. And some of these women probably just went back to their home countries and maybe didn't tell anyone. But some of them may have met bad ends. We don't know. But because of this, the police really didn't care that much. They were like, oh, another woman, another foreign woman just left Japan. I don't care. So mm-hmm. that was pretty bad. But thanks to the efforts of... Tim Blackman, Lucy's fa- who is Lucy's father, and others who knew Lucy, uh, the media put a lot of pressure on the police, and a quote from the book, no, not, uh, sorry, this is a quote from an article, Tokyo police threw more officers onto this case than it had committed to the 1995 sarin gas attacks on the city's subway network. Wow. Yeah, so as a reminder, in 1995, there was a killer cult, that is the time, one time, that is a time, when cults killed people they Mm -hmm. did a gas attack on the tokyo subway in 1995 and killed people i don't know how many maybe that's next week's episode or Uh, two weeks from now maybe that's my next episode let's just keep it let's just keep the death ball rolling let's do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i'm gonna give you a we're gonna jump back in time again Mm -hmm. so we're gonna jump back in time and hear the experiences of some foreign women who had been working as hostesses in Tokyo. So first we're going to talk about a woman named Christabel McKenzie. She was Scottish. She was from a well-off family. She actually uh, knew Louise's sister. Remember, Louise is Lucy, uh, Lucy's friend. Lucy is the woman who was missing. So Mm. this woman, Christabel, also known as Krista, uh, actually had been a hostess with Louise's sister. And actually, Krista was the one who booked the Sasaki house, the share house for Louise and Lucy. Um, so she was in Japan in the mid-90s, worked as a hostess in Akasaka, not Roppongi. Do you remember Akasaka? Mm. Yes, I do. It was right next to our university, mm-hmm. actually. 
Anyway, so that was more of an upscale. Uh, she worked in more of an upscale hostess. The Rapongi ones were a bit more like gritty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she, she made even more money. Oh, she she was paid around three thousand yen an hour, which is thirty USD an hour. And this is compared to she'd been making hundred and eighty USD a week in London before this. Ooh. So she was like, "This is way better." Okay, this was before her Dohan and her bonuses. So she made thirty dollars an hour. Crushing it. She was working at her hostess club and she met a man named Yuji Honda. He was a client or customer. Customer? There's another word, but I'm going to go with customer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had good English. He actually wasn't quite as creepy as some of the other patrons. He did sweat a lot. Mm -hmm. She Mm -hmm. noted that. Um, And they went out for dinner, the paid dinner, Dohan, every week for a month, which was great for her. He seemed really rich. He had like three Porsches. Wow. Um, seemed pretty good. So in May of 1995, she agreed to go, uh, with him to his like seaside home to like see Mm -hmm. his quote unquote vacation home. Oh no. Near the seaside. Around 3 a.m. So they'd been out to dinner and he was like, Hey, you want to go? She was like, sure. I like adventure. I don't care about bedtimes. When she got there, she was like, I would like to specify this woman did not I'm just going to say that this woman does not die, by the way. Just going to put this out there. Ooh, thank okay. you. Um, she is, I assume, still alive. But at least in the story, she is still alive. I hope she's still alive now because she's quite young. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, she goes out to his, like, seaside home. And she gets there. And she's like, mm-hmm. this place is not that nice. She's like, is he not as rich as I thought? Like, the place kind of mm. looks like his mother maybe decorated it. There's a lot of old lady floral patterns and the couch and the drapes. And she's like, this is weird, whatever. And they ate fugu, which is, in case you don't know, fugu is a blowfish. It's, mm-hmm. uh, if it's not prepared right, it's poisonous. But personally, I think that is like, I don't think people really get poisoned by fugu much in Japan. I think it's like blown up. <laughs> it's like, it's such a popularized thing. But if you actually look at the statistics, like next to nobody actually yeah. is poisoned. I've had fugu. I have not. Yeah. That makes sense. Since most, a lot of your time in Japan, you didn't eat fish. Yes. Mine was okay. Fugu, fugu break. So actually my mom's listening and she's going to be mad because she, she's very much thinks this is poisonous. And before I went to Japan, she was like, you cannot eat that blowfish. And I didn't plan to, I didn't really have an mm-hmm. interest in it. Cause I knew it's expensive. Mm-hmm. I didn't care, but mm-hmm. I go to a work party, like, I guess a year and a half ago before, you know, Corona, I realized it's at a fugu restaurant. So everything is fugu. So I have to eat it. Oh, and, okay. uh, it was pretty good. Like it, Mm-hmm. Um, the sashimi, which is, you know, just raw fish. I liked that. They, it, it doesn't, it's really kind of light. It doesn't have a strong mm-hmm. flavor. So they give you like green onions and like ponzu, which is citrus mm-hmm. soy sauce to dip it in. It was pretty good. We had like fucking, um, they gave us sake that had fugu in it. Uh, they gave us like fugu. Everything was fugu. It was, it was exciting. That's I was a lot. so full. And at the end, so this is. I work at the local board of education sometimes, and this was the board of education party, so it was fancy. Mm-hmm. And I like, no one asked for him for money, and I like, I'm like trying to hunt down who to pay, and I'm like, hey, uh, do I owe money? She's like, oh no, it's fine. And then I go to another person, I was like, hey, who do I pay? And they pointed to the woman I just talked to, and I was like, oh my god, I just got a free like expensive ass meal. Damn. From hospitality, right there. Yes. And that was probably at least a hundred dollar meal, man. Dang, we were, you got we were that in a, shit for free. We were in a banquet hall 
in an expensive restaurant. Damn. It was the uh, year-end party. Yeah, they always go out for those. Sad anyway. Um, so, sorry. That was, a, that was a structured fugu chat. <laughs> so they ate fugu. Man really liked fugu, apparently. He played guitar. He was okay. And finally, she said she wanted to go back to Tokyo. And I'm going to go to my book now. Which, what page 195. <laughs> you have so much reference material. This is impressive. I know. It's because I, I know I'm impressed with myself right now. It's like, <laughs> y'all, it's 6 fucking 30 in the morning. I've been up for two hours. I have, like, references. I'm reading you quotes from a book. Damn. Y'all should pay me. <laughs> okay. They, you, they should. They should. Oh, no, it's the next page. Ah, okay, it's page 196. She told Yuji, that was the man, Mm -hmm. so she told Mm -hmm. Yuji that she wanted to go back to Tokyo, but he Mm -hmm. said he had one more thing to show her. He described it as a rare wine from the Philippines. It was among the clutter of bottles on the sideboard. He poured a measure into a small glass from a crystal decanter and handed it to Krista, who downed it in a single drought as she stood by the window. No... For other women in the same situation, that was the last thing they knew. The acrid chemical taste of the wine going down. But months of hard drinking had made Krista tolerant to the most powerful intoxicants. I had no expectation at all of anything being wrong, she said. And I think he'd cottoned on that I liked to drink a lot. And that I was the sort of person who always took on a challenge. I drank it because it was the kind of thing I did then. I was into being tough. I can remember standing at the window as it came on, realizing what had happened... And that this could be a very big problem. I had time to reflect on what was happening. I remember thinking, oh, fuck. It was like going under a general anesthetic. I was already too drugged to feel afraid. Mm. And I'll read the next part. Uh, She woke up in the darkness, lying alone in a bed. She understood immediately what had happened and that... Sorry, she understood immediately what had happened and the kind of thing that must have taken place while she was unconscious. I remember thinking, how do I feel? I'm trying to work out what exactly had happened to me, but I didn't feel sore and I had my clothes on. I thought that I must have been asleep for a long time because he bothered to dress me. And so basically he drove her back to Tokyo or no, I don't think he drove her back. Um, yeah, he drove her back to Tokyo and I, I there was uh, spoiler alert that this kind of thing happened to a bunch of other women and um in some cases he just gave them a bunch of money and like taxi vouchers and sent them back and he would often lie and say like oh you drank too much and you passed out one time he was like there was a gas leak gas leak (laughs) so i'm gonna tell you a a few more women that something like this had happened to so Uh, did he use Mm -hmm. the date rape drug or like yeah we're gonna talk about that later but basically yeah he used a date rape drug um okay I'm going to, this also happened to a bunch of other women. I'm going to reference another page, page 210. When several women, you know, heard that what happened to Lucy and they're like, oh, she disappeared. She went to the seaside and she disappeared. So it's basically was like several Roppongi hostesses active and retired were going through the same experience as Christabel McKenzie, which is the woman I just mentioned of sudden jolting reacquaintance with a memory repressed. Clara Mm. from Canada. Isabel and Charmaine from Australia, Ronia from Israel, Katie from America, Lana from Britain, Tanya from the UK, from the UK, Tanya from UK, Jesus Christ, Tanya <laughs> from Ukraine. That's a tongue twister. Yeah. 
Each recalled a different name, Yuji, Koji, Saito, Akira. But the experience was the same. A well-dressed, middle-aged English speaker with an expensive car. Mm. A drive to a seaside apartment among palm trees, a single sip of drink, then darkness, followed many hours Mm. later by dizzy, nauseated consciousness. Mm. This had been happening since, like, at least the 90s. All of these women, this happened to them in the 90s. Most of these women did not go to the police. You know, they were there working illegally. Even now, the police aren't super great at dealing with sexual assault. Uh, But one woman did. So Katie Vickers was from America. Mm. And she met a man named Koji. Same thing happened to her. Uh, She woke on the sofa in her underwear, and he said there'd been a gas leak. She had a very strong reaction afterward. She was nauseated for days. She showed up to work, and she was slurring. So work is a hostess bar, a hostess club. Her boss sent her to the hospital, and then eventually when he found out, I guess she told him what had happened, he went to the police with her. And I want to say, like, props to that fucking owner of that hostess club. Mm -hmm. Like... He could have been a complete sleazeball who didn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. he was hiring women illegally. But I Mm -hmm. think they just let it like, like, I think the police overlooked that. But Mm -hmm. he took, he went to the police with her and like translated for her. Like props to that man. I'm just going to say. But unfortunately, the police did not take them seriously. They didn't even file a report. They basically just left them in like the front, like the front area where everyone could hear them. And they wrote, scratched some notes down on a piece of paper. This is exactly why, like, you often hear it uh, stated that, you know, crime rates are so low in Japan. Japan is such a safe place to be. And while that is true that it's safer than other places, a a lot of those statistics are completely skewed by the fact that that the police just don't act on a lot of stuff that is reported. Exactly. And that's definitely true. Yeah, and this was not, I want to specify again, this was 1997, just so that everyone has a timestamp. Hopefully it's different now. I think it's different, but I don't, probably could still be improved. Okay, I'm going to talk about another woman. Her name was Karita Ridgway, and she was from Perth, which is in Australia, Mm. in case anyone didn't know that. She went to Tokyo to make money as a hostess. She didn't love the job. She originally was going to be an English teacher, but either A, she didn't like that job either, or she couldn't find a job. She went with hostessing because A, she could make a lot of money. But make, um, make a lot more money doing that than teaching English. Yeah, but honestly, she since she didn't like being a hostess so much, she wasn't super great at it. Um, she didn't drink alcohol, and I guess that wasn't a requirement, but it probably helped if you drank on the mm-hmm. job. And she possibly never had a dohan, one of those paid dates, which mm-hmm. is a very important part of your job. Friday, February 14th, 1992, she went on a Dohan with a client. The following Sunday, so like two days later, her sister, who was there in Japan with her, named Samantha, returned to their share house and, or turned to her share house, or their share house, some share house, <laughs> and had a strange message. And this is 1992, so I'm assuming the message was probably written for her somewhere. And so I don't know mm-hmm. if, uh, who left the message? I don't think it was Karita. 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 Japanese Karita. <laughs> Karita. I don't think it was her. I don't know. I feel like it probably wasn't her. I feel like it was probably some man. A message that Karita was going to be 
going away with friends for the weekend. Had no specific return date. Mm-hmm. Sus. Yep. And then that Monday, 9 a.m., Samantha gets a call from the hospital. And mm-hmm. her sister, Karita, is there. And she has food poisoning. Mm. And a man named Akira Nishida had dropped her off saying she ate some bad selfish in Kamakura, which is a tourist destination near Tokyo. Mm. She was in bad condition. She went into a coma. She was turning yellow. She had liver failure. She was getting an expensive liver treatment. Their parents, Karita and Samantha's parents, flew out. And this mystery man, Akira, uh, called Samantha, that's the sister of the woman in the hospital, uh, a few times at home repeating the story about the bad shellfish she ate. Samantha and her Japanese boyfriend purported this man, mystery man on the phone to the police, but they never looked into it. And unfortunately, Karita died in the hospital Wait. a few days later. Oh my God. Um, they didn't do an autopsy because the parents, I think, were just very overwhelmed. Their daughter died in a foreign country. They had mm-hmm. to, you know, deal with that. And the hospital did a... Kind of did a funeral for her there. They wrote in the book about how they dressed her in this, like, really beautiful pink kimono. And they put flowers all around her. And her family got to say goodbye. Mm. And then they cremated her. And I also found out something interesting. They also said, so after they cremated her, they, the parents basically went in with these, like, ceremonial chopsticks and, like, took the bones and put them in an urn. And then they put all the ashes in there, and apparently that's normal. I just never heard that before. Um, I don't know. I'm gonna Seems check. Traumatizing. I'm gonna I'm gonna fact check with a with a coworker if that's like a thing that sometimes happens in Japanese burials. But the parents actually they liked it. Some people were like, "That's weird. Why did y'all do that?" They were like, "It was." They were like, "Actually, it was really therapeutic Cathartic. and nice in a way. Mm. It was like we were taking care of her." Which is really mm. sad. That's really sad. And really sad. not to interrupt you, but sidebar, I'm not sure if you ever encountered this while living in Japan, but while I was living there, I did look into getting some type of additional uh, health insurance. Yeah. I remember when I first moved there, like my, my dad thought it would be a good idea. And I remember looking at international health insurance. And one thing that's included, which is really morbid, is what's called repatriation, mm-hmm. which is if you die, like if I were to die in Japan, it would be insurance that covers the cost of taking your body and bring it back to the US. If my parents didn't want me to be like cremated, they could, you know, take my dead body and fly it back to the United States. That's such a morbid thought. But yeah, I knew about that. I knew it. when mm-hmm. I studied abroad, they were like, get this. We hope you don't die, but it's like 10 grand to get your body back. So yeah, do this. It's really expensive. So, uh, unfortunately, Karita died, her parents had her cremated, and then that mystery man called them and said that he wanted to give them some money to, like, help with the cost of flying to Japan and all this stuff, and so they agreed to meet him in the airport hotel near Narita Airport, and he gave them some money. They said it was really weird. He was a weird man, and he was also very sweaty. Oh my god, that detail. Yeah, there's a lot of little things like that. Like the seaside apartment, this man being sweaty. Anyway, so now we are going to talk about what action the police finally took. So after hearing 
what happened to Lucy, those women that had unfortunately had that experience of being incapacitated by that man and they probably raped from their perspective. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. know, but it seems pretty likely. Mm -hmm. After they heard what happened to Lucy and how she like went to a seaside apartment with a Japanese guy, they were like, "Hmm." so a lot of them went to the police and finally, maybe not a lot, but a few of them, I can't remember which ones, went to the police and finally the police listened and they got on the trail of a man based on that and based on some other stuff and in October 2001, a full year and two months after Lucy disappeared, <sighs> they arrested a man named Joji Obata, who I will now talk about. I would also like to, to say on Wikipedia, I know that like it's people on the internet that edit Wikipedia, so I guess this is all of our fault. I find it really strange that when you type in Lucy Blackman into Wikipedia, she does not have her own page. It takes you instead to the page of her murderer. What the fuck? Right. And I was like, what? And I, I mean, I, I, I assume that this is just, I don't know. I don't know why that happens. But in Japanese, if you look it up, because I looked at the Japanese Wikipedia page, uh, they call it the, like the Lucy Blackman case. Oh, okay. But I don't know why in English. It just takes you to his page, which I thought was kind of shitty. That is shitty. I almost wonder yeah. if it were the British Wikipedia, if you would get her page. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good... <laughs> they the same? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not gonna. I, think, I don't have time I to test they it. Are different. <laughs> but anyway, I just want to say because with in true crime, I am interested in true crime, but I also I want to try to make the victims the center. Mm-hmm. Of course, you do have to talk about the, the perpetrator. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I don't want to give them too much focus. So, mm-hmm. uh, 2001, they arrest this man named Joji Obata. Obata. This gets interesting because again, this is like a case is gonna send us down another small rabbit hole this guy so first of all he went through many names as we've seen he gave different names to each of the women that he assaulted Mm -hmm. um but even through his life he had many legal names so first and foremost this man was born by the name kim sung jong because he is a korean japanese japanese korean oh okay i just sent me down a rabbit hole the book goes a couple pages about like ethnic Koreans in Japan that I didn't even realize the extent. Do you know anything about that? Or do you know? Um, ethnic Koreans in Japan? Yeah. Oh, man. That's a whole can of worms. Yeah. That's and a so, whole podcast episode. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so briefly, you know, World War II, Japan was trying to have an, an empire and they uh, took over China and Korea. And in Korea, they were real shit. They were just real yep. shit. And they basically wanted to turn Korea into Japan. That's what they wanted. They wanted people to stop speaking Korean. They wanted to speak Japanese. They raped a bunch of women. Mm-hmm. And which they still suck at apologizing for, by the way. The government, Oof. at least. Big time. Part of that is that they, um, during World War II, or when, or, sorry, they were annexing Korea before World War II. During the time they were annexing Korea, they, some Koreans came to Japan to work and then also after world war ii some koreans came to japan because they thought they could have more opportunities there than in korea because korea was pretty poor right after the war i mean japan was Mm. too i mean japan was too because they lost the war but they also had the american government there kind of trying to help push things along to make it better Mm -hmm. so his parents came to japan after world war ii and they lived in osaka 
you know, they started off really poor, but his dad was a pretty good businessman, pretty lucky, and he owned, like, a lot of parking lots and a lot of pachinko hmm. parlors, and he built off some wealth, and they started out his life, the man, Joji Obata, we're talking about, started out his life pretty poor, and then they moved to, like, they were fucking rich. They, like, lived in the richest part of Osaka. Like, they were some rich motherfuckers, which is how he got nice. all his money. Nice. Um, Just kidding. Not nice. <laughs> well, nice for mm. everyone else in his family that's not a murderer. Yeah, and it's and also I want to you know mention that these Japanese Koreans called Zainichi in Japanese have mm-hmm. faced and possibly and probably still do awful discrimination, awful yep. discrimination. And there are I think I briefly read an article about how there are even people in Japan who don't even know that they're ethnically Korean, like it was hidden from that, like because. I'm just going to say physically Korean and Japanese people look very similar. And if you're a Korean and you're just raised in Japan, no one's going to know different because you're going to speak Japanese because you're Japanese. People will claim that they can tell, but I'm very skeptical. I'm very skeptical. I, I think you might be able to tell based on like behavior things, quote unquote, if that makes sense. Like there might be, I, I don't know, but I think just physically, like if you just saw a picture. I'm um, skeptical. I'm skeptical the murderer we're talking about, he did change his name to Seisho Hoshiyama in high school. And he also went to high school by himself in Tokyo. He was born in Osaka because he got into this prestigious high school attached to Keio University, but he kind of fucked around in high school and did not get to go to Keio University. Oh no, my dude. Um, but he was still rich. For the listeners information, Keio is considered to be one of the best universities in Japan. Yes. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Then after that, he changed his name to Joji Obata, final legal name. He also really avoided being photographed. He kind of just wanted to go under the radar, probably because he was doing all this sketchy crime shit. Some things that were uncovered. The first, around the time that Lucy disappeared, some neighbors called the police about a suspicious man in the town near the sea. Um, Mm. Police went to his door and found a sweaty, perturbed guy, but did not enter (laughs) the building because they didn't have a warrant. Eventually, I think after he may have called them back and been like, hey, sorry, I was so weird earlier. Um, My dog died and I had it frozen and I was like, gonna cut off its head and bury it. And he showed them I'm... the like, frozen dog head and they were like, and I, and I just thought if you saw this, you'd be pretty freaked out. So I apologize, but it's all chill. I'm just cutting my dog in half. It's all chill. <laughs> so I don't know, or I don't know if he cut the dog's head off, but he did have the frozen corpse of his dog. The, like this man did not have friends really through his entire life, but he did have a dog for several years that he loved the shit out of. And oh uh, when it died, he froze it, hoping that one day science would find a way to revive it oh he is horrifying that is so horrifying yeah um there's also a report of him taking a large object out in a large bag oh god yeah there was a bunch of tiny details there i don't remember them all and i'm not going to go into it but there had been some Mm -hmm. suspicious things that he'd done around the time of lucy's death okay but Oh, shit. Nope, sorry. He was arrested in October of 2000, so it didn't take them a year. Sorry, they arrested him, like, three months after she disappeared. I apologize. Correction to my earlier self. I'm pretty sure. Okay. These dates could be off. But I think he got Mm. arrested pretty quickly, actually, so good. Uh, They arrested him for the rape of one of the women. He... The police wanted a confession because this, again, another rabbit hole about Japanese legal system. So in Japan, the way 
criminal justice system works is that they really want a confession because it's almost impossible to get a guilty verdict without a confession. They, it's really important. It's just, it's, you know, we can make some claims of how that's a negative thing to do, but it is, they view it as, I guess, the most fair thing. If you get a confession, you can know that the person really did it because in the courts, they like to place a lot of emphasis on motive. So they want a confession, so they keep them there. Now, the problem with this is that, A, we know now that false confessions are a thing. You put someone with police and they're, like, treating them like shit and they just want to go home and they sign something so they can go home. That's a thing that happens. And in Japan, when you arrest someone, you can keep them for, like, three weeks. Holy shit. And you can interrogate them for, like, 15 hours a day. Maybe more. Oh, my God. I put some pages here, but we don't have time for me to read more shit. So I'm just going to give you what I remember. So yeah. And so that's what they did to him. They kept him for 23 days. But this guy was very uncooperative. He didn't confess. Like he was like, nah, I'm good. And also when they took his picture, he like would not look at the camera and they didn't want to like lift up his chin because they thought people would say that they were like abusing him. But 16 hour a day interrogations. That's fine. That's not abuse. Oh my God. So, you can keep them for 23 days. That's what I put. No questions asked. So, the 23-day limit kept coming for this guy because he wouldn't confess. But he had potentially raped so many women that they just kept charging him. Good. They were like, yeah, I know. One. Yeah, and I, part of me was like, is that is that bad that they can keep doing that? I was like, but also, if you've done that many crimes, maybe you can just keep being, like, arrested. Don't rape a ton of women. Yeah. That's my response to that. <laughs> That's true. um but i i i do want to yeah i do want to say that this description of the japanese justice system i do have some problems with it i think that coerced confessions are probably a thing and i don't like it those are my thoughts but Mm -hmm. again a rabbit hole he is in there they keep charging him he will not confess he's just like no also a thing about the justice system is that i guess the way it works in Japan is the idea if you like charge someone with a crime is that they're guilty basically so when you arrest someone and then after that I guess you charge them with the crime I don't I'm not a lawyer but anyway it's that second step in Japan once you basically do that it's pretty much presumed that you're guilty and the idea is it's very different from us in America where you're like innocent until proven guilty. But to put like a spin on it, a more positive spin, the idea is like they don't want to charge someone unless they really think they're guilty. Mm-hmm. Just as a side note, I think Japan has over a 90% conviction rate or something. That is 100. Yes, it's like 99% or something. I was going to mm-hmm. say that. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's crazy. And mm-hmm. being a defense lawyer in Japan sounds like such shit. Why would anybody want to be a defense lawyer? In the book, Ooh. they said, if you were a defense lawyer, you win a case every 30 years. Oh, hell no. 30 years? What the fuck? Right? Oh, hell no. No, thank you. No, that's demoralizing. Yeah, it is. So we could do a whole episode about the just the Japanese justice system. It's very interesting how that works. So just so that everyone has a image of what the justice system that this man is being charged in is like. They want him to confess because that'll be their easiest thing, and maybe he'll also give them some more information because that because at this point they don't know where Lucy's body is. They don't have a oh, body. 
So, on January 10th, 2001, they found her body. It was found... So, the town where his seaside apartment is, is called Zushi, which is... I looked it up. It seemed like it was like an hour outside of Tokyo, kind of far. It's like kind of next... that town. It's kind of next to Kamakura. In Zushi, they find her body hundreds of meters from Obata's seaside home. Oh. In oh, a seaside God. cave... Buried under a bathtub. Oh um, my god. It had been there too long for them to determine a cause of death. Really? Yeah. Oh. And also, like, I think some cement was, like, poured in her head. You know, I think there was, based on some descriptions in the book, it seemed like maybe he had planned to throw her into the ocean. But he couldn't do it, so he oh. buried her in that cave. That's why he would pour cement into her head yeah. to sink yeah. her. Oh. That's what I think. So, yeah, they found her. And, you know, then there was the question of why the hell did it take so long? Why the hell did he do this? Oh, yeah, that's going to get explained. So why did it take so long for the police to find her? First of all, it may have just been incompetence. But, like, they had actually searched, like, that whole area before. So it seems kind of strange. So either they were just mm-hmm. really incompetent or, conspiracy theory, they actually were waiting for him to confess because that way... Um, if he confessed and said, I hid the body in this place, and then they went and saw it there, it would give them a stronger case. Mm, okay. But that's pretty fucked up, because maybe if they would have found it earlier, they could have determined the cause of death. Her poor family. Incriminating evidence. Um, they did find a picture of Lucy. Not a sexual picture, but just like her kind of standing near the sea, like, hey, you look pretty. Take a picture in front of the mm. ocean. Um, they also found some phone records tying him to Lucy. He was the one who called Louise with that weird cult thing. Why did he even do that? I think he was trying to cover it up. And so he was the source of the bizarre cult phone call. You remember the Karita woman who died in the hospital, unfortunately? Mm-hmm. They found a receipt connecting him to her, showing that he was the man who dropped her off at the hospital. And... The hospital oh, had no. accidentally kept a portion of Karita's liver, and they tested it and found chloroform in it. Oh and this, my God. this tied with the next very disturbing information I'm about to tell you, basically showed that he did this. So, in his home, they found possibly hundreds of videos of him raping unconscious women. <gasps> he videoed it. God, it's just so disturbing. Oh, um, yeah, hardcore. My if God. Another content warning. Warning. What I'm about to say is very distressing. If you want to skip, don't blame you. TLDR: He raped unconscious women. I'm gonna go into a little, just a little bit more detail. Not anything crazy. Oh my God. So, yeah, and in the videos, when the women seemed to stir, he'd put a chloroform-soaked rag over their faces to keep them um, asleep. Sometimes he wore a Zorro-type mask. And sometimes these sessions went on for like 12 hours. He would rape them for 12 hours? Yes. I mean, I assume maybe he took breaks, but like, I, I am legit nauseous right now. Like, this is disturbing shit. The, like, the thought that these types of people exist, like, right. I will never become numb to it. And I would hope that nobody Ugh. would. And, um, yeah, so he had, he also wrote journal entries about all this. He wrote in his diary this quote, My goal is to have sex with 500 people by the age of 50. In a separate entry, he wrote, I can't do women who are conscious. Uh, that's 
not okay obviously um, yeah Ugh. and so here's a i think a quote from an article this is about his mo according to the prosecution case he would typically lure the women to one of his seaside apartments offer them a glass of rare wine that he had laced with drugs then lug their limp bodies onto a bed where he would assault them with various objects for 12 hours or more the video evidence showed that he would then place a chloroform-soaked rag over their faces to stop them from remaining, sorry, to stop them from regaining consciousness. Many had little idea what had happened to them when they woke up groggy and sore. Some may even have believed Obata's supposed story that they passed out after drinking too much. He did this oh to so many women. God. We don't even know. We don't even know how many women he did this to. The so, fact that, like, he has a hundred videos, but he could have done it, very well done it to women he didn't video. Yeah. Um, also, it, they don't know the exact... I, I couldn't find a source for the exact number. He could had anywhere from 50 to, like, 400 videos. Oh, my God. So, like, this dude had been doing this for, like, decades. And so, basically, what happened with Karita and Lucy, they believe, is that he gave them too much chloroform. Like, he put the chloroform rag on their face too much, and they died. So it was like, quote unquote, an accident. I mean, like, he obviously didn't yeah. care that much because he was raping these women. But he, his mm -hmm. goal, I want to say, like, his goal wasn't to kill women. Like, wasn't to kill them. He didn't get yeah. off on killing women. He just got off on raping unconscious women, which is still fucked up. Mm -hmm. Sort of an accident. He didn't yeah. intend to kill them. But he did, mm -hmm. you know, with Karina, he took her to the hospital and she died. But Lucy died, you know, I guess at his apartment. So she got rid of the body. That said, though, he did, like, he dismembered her. He cut her up. I forgot to mention that. So that's, that's, that's fucked up. Like you, you are not a person who cares about other people. If you can cut a human body into pieces. No, this person is seriously oh, deranged. 100%. So, um, took him to trial. The trial took six years. What? Apparently that's normal. So in Japan, apparently they, so like, you know, in the U S and the UK, if we will do like a, like a hearing every day or two hearings a day. In Japan, they do it once a month. I'm sorry. I'm, so not, this, I'm not hating this on Japan. guy got to like live the life of a free man? No, no, no. He still lived in a detention center. It wasn't as intense as jail, but he did like live in a cell. But also like, that's, f I mean, in his case, he was a bad guy. So I'm okay that he was in a detention center. But like for people mm -hmm. who aren't actually guilty if they have to live at a detention center for like a, a year or more when they're being tried it just seems unfair i would like mm -hmm. to say um anyway it took six years he always maintained his innocence to honestly comic effect he had this long ass story about how he didn't murder her some dude that he knew murdered her he was trying to bury his dog i don't know he's guilty so he was tried for eight rapes and two murders he was found guilty of Karita's death. That was the woman in the hospital. The eight rapes, which included Karita and Lucy, and was four for four foreign women and four Japanese women. Mm -hmm. And the disposal of Lucy's body. But because they couldn't find any physical evidence to tie him to her murder and rape, they didn't charge him for that. They didn't say that he was guilty for her murder and rape. That said, he went to prison for life. He got a life sentence. Thank God. And on appeal, he did eventually get... Uh, tried for, not tried, found guilty for her murder and her rape. Or at least her murder. Maybe, I don't know about her rape, but at least her murder. Is this man still in jail? 
he's either in jail or dead yeah i, I was gonna say i feel I like know. in america this type of person would be murdered in jail <laughs> so to wrap this up he was he killed lucy he killed this other karita woman so at the end of the book i read the author talks about how you know japan is known as being a safe country which you were talking about he basically tried to say that like uh because japan statistically is a much safer country than the uk and the us but the thing to remember is that statistics doesn't mean it's zero people Mm -hmm. still crimes still happen the author mr perry said oh he viewed it as she was just a very you know unlucky woman in an unlucky circumstance in usually safe place but then lucy's father when he was talking to Perry about this, said, no, I don't view it that way. He's like, the police fucked up because this man had been raping women for like decades, like at least one or Mm -hmm. two decades. And the Katie, the woman Katie, she went to the police and told them and they wouldn't listen. Like, so it is 100% as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned, the police's fault for not looking into this. And this is a Mm -hmm. great example of how you, the police need to take sexual assault seriously because- Mm -hmm. Someone who's sexually assaulting women or sexually assaulting men, because mm-hmm. that happens. Someone who's sexually assaulting could lead to being a murderer. Listening to women doesn't mean like the woman comes in and she's like, oh, this man raped me. And then they arrest him without looking into it. It means they make a police report and then look into it. And if they find evidence, which with this man, if they went to his fucking house, they would have found so much evidence. Mm-hmm. Like They just find evidence. You know, they arrest him and would have stopped him. So it's just an example of why we need to listen to women about sexual, about sexual mm-hmm. assault. Mm. I agree with the father of Lucy. I do not agree with the author. I think this is, this has so much to do with police incompetence. And I do think there is bias in Japan against foreign people when they come to police offices to report crimes. I've heard many, many stories anecdotally, as well as, you know, I've read online, you know, accounts from women. I've, you know, seen statistics like this is, this is an issue. Yeah. Uh, It, yeah, it is. So yeah, that was, a really sad case of Lucy Blackman and Carita, Carita Ridgeway. Um, they both died at the hands of this awful man. After this, uh, Lucy's father, Tim, set up a thing called the Lucy Blackman Trust, which I think did a lot of maybe some educational things about, I don't know, being safe. And I don't know, it did, I didn't look up what it did. It did exactly, but he did do that. Um, and, you know, this was awful for the family. They had to get through this trauma um her sister tried to commit suicide a year or two after this it just you know it sucks it sucks there's no like i'm not gonna put like a nice happy ending or any like any kind Mm -hmm. of thing i mean i'm glad this man got caught Mm -hmm. but it's wish you i fucking wish you would have been caught earlier it's just tragic Mm -hmm. and this woman was Mm -hmm. like she was 21 she was so young Mm mm-hmm No, that's uh, so young. When I think about, like, if something like this were to happen to one of my sisters, oh, my God. Can't even imagine. It's tragic. Uh, It really is. That was today's exhilarating, depressing story of the deaths of Lucy Blackman and Karita Ridsway at the hands of this awful man, Joji Obata, who went Mm -hmm. to jail for life. Oof. 
terrible. But to your point, I'm glad that this person is in jail. Um, I was worried the story was going to end with like no conclusion. So at least the family has that. They have some type of like closure, but obviously this is, this is horrifying. Yeah, it's a crazy case. And the book I read, People Who Eat Darkness, I was great. There's so many extra details that I had to leave out because he wrote like a 400-page book about it. This man did his research. He also, I feel like he did Lucy Justice at the beginning of the book. He wrote like 50 pages about her and what she was like. Mm. And she Mm. was like a really lovely um, young woman who just wanted Mm -hmm. to like see the world and make money. And um, Mm -hmm. it's just really tragic. Yeah. Really I think sad. that is where we have to leave it. So do you have any final thoughts? This was a very interesting topic. I do feel like I have vaguely heard this story before because I knew that there was a famous crime committed against a British woman in Japan, but I didn't know any of the details. There is also another famous crime against a British woman that happened seven years later, but happened during the trial where a woman was an English teacher and she went to some guy's house who she had, I think, been like tutoring in English and he just violently murdered her. The author of the book I read said that in people's minds, sometimes they would mix up Lucy and this woman because the sentencing of her killer, of Lucy's killer, happened around the same time that this murder happened, so... It could have been okay. one or both of those that you heard about as well. Unfortunately, Maybe I can't I'm remember doing the that name. Too. Unfortunately, I, I can't remember that. the name. But yeah, that was it. We're going to leave y'all on a downer because <laughs> I have hang up. And Next go to work. episode will be an upper. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to just corner Becky. I'm going to corner you, Rebecca, into doing happy episodes. And I'm just going to do the depressing episodes. I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> down. <laughs> Because I've been thinking about the next episode, and I'm like, I should do something happy. And then I'll, like, be on the internet, and I'll find something, and I'll be like, but this is more interesting. So Do what's interesting to you. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what kick I stay on. All right. And with that, we're going to let y'all go. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.